Well, we ended Matthew 22 last week, and we saw there as Matthew 22 ended, Jesus drew on an Old Testament text that predicted what the Messiah, the coming Savior, would be like. And that's our text this morning, Psalm 110. It's such a crucial text, such a key passage of the Old Testament that is coming from the first three quarters of our Bible. And I don't say that merely because Jesus leveraged it to befuddle the Jews of his day, but did you realize that Psalm 110 is the most quoted text of the Old Testament in the New Testament? The New Testament writers quote one text of the Old Testament more than any other, and it's this psalm, the 110th psalm. Well, why is that? Why do they look to it so often? What is this psalm about? It deserves our divided attention, undivided attention this morning uh, to stop and park here as we venture out of Matthew 22. Well, what is it? What, what is this psalm all about? Well, we're going to try and unearth that some this morning. This Old Testament text, more than any other, obviously captured the minds and hearts of the early Christians. As they meditated on the promises of God, and they saw the string of God's promises, and they saw, well, Jesus fulfills that, so how does that fit together? And the solution kept coming back to this psalm. And so here we will see the significance, the ministry, the glory of Jesus, perhaps no more clearly in the Old Testament than here. So what we discover in this text, and it's just the greatness of Christ, that he is a great king. And so then he's worthy of everything we have, all of our devotion, all of our trust. So here's the word this morning for our meditation. Jesus Christ is the greatest king. But here's the thing. What makes him so great is because he's not just a king. He's more than a king. Because see, we need more than some powerful ruler. We need a mediator. We need mercy. We need God's king and priest, the eternal Jesus Christ. So the word to us this morning, we will look to him, our great king, as displayed here in Psalm 110. And so then the outline follows. How do we respond to a king like this? When we look and see the greatness of Christ, how should we respond to him? Well, we'll see three responses, three ways you must respond to a king like this. How do you respond to God's king? First, you enlist with God's ordained king. You enlist. When you see God anoint and say, this is my king, the wise person gets in line right behind him joins his team, gets on his side. Enlist yourself into his ranks. Now, as we come to Psalm 110, obviously we're reading the Bible, we're reading God's word. But even more than this, this psalm itself captures the very communication of God. And we'll see it captures the communication of God to God within the Godhead. It's astonishing. Because this is how the psalm opens. And remember, this is the reality, and it's the verse itself, that Jesus used to befuddle the Jews of his day. We saw that last week. But here's the psalm as it opens, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord God, the only God and creator and maker of heaven and earth, the one who redeemed Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Yahweh says to, David writes, my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is amazing. In this quote, we get to listen in on this intra-Trinitarian conversation 
this conversation, this word from God the Father given to God the Son there in heaven. Because again, to reference last week, Matthew 22, this is how Jesus stumped the Pharisees. This is what the Pharisees could not understand about the Messiah, the coming king. See, the Jews fully expected, right, that the Messiah would be David's son. He'd come from David's line. That's what the promise is all set up, and he will. That was the question Jesus posed. Whose son is he? Well, he's David's son. You got that right. Congratulations. But though he's David's son, Jesus then raises this curious question, right? How then did David call his son Lord? Because in the Old Testament, in, in an ancient Near Eastern context, you would never do a thing like that. Fathers were always preferenced over sons. And so as Jesus posed that curious question we saw last week, the, the Pharisees, they couldn't conceive what the answer could possibly be. How could it be that David would submit to this son of his? Well, it's because, and that's the theme that Jesus brought out, he's no mere son of David, is he? He's far more. This is Jesus Christ. He's God the Son. And God's Son became man to to be, yes, truly God and truly man in the great one, Jesus And that's what we celebrate, of course, with the incarnation where God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And so here we overhear the word from God the Father speaking to whom David calls my Lord. That's God the Son, the Messiah in heaven, speaking of his mission. And indeed, as we unpack the words that he gives him, This is all messianic language here in verse 1, to look at it again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sitting right hand, making enemies your footstool. This is kingdom language. This is ruling language. This is kingship and dominion and kingdom terms. David's Lord's called to sit in the place of honor at God's right hand in heaven. In the context of the ancient Near Eastern throne room, the one seated at the king's right hand, this one would typically be a decked out, fully armed warrior who would actually sit and rule with the king. See, he was set up to be the last line of defense for the one seated on the throne. So from the king to the one who sits to his right hand, there can be no greater honor. There can be no greater bestowal of trust There can be no greater affirmation than to say, you will be my warrior, my last defense at my right hand. Only here it's interesting. For as the Messiah is invited to sit at the Lord's, God's right hand, it's Yahweh, the Lord himself, will be the one who will be subjecting all of the enemies under the Son's feet. Did you see that? Look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord is going to fight for him. The Lord is going to empower him. And he's going to make all of his enemies like a footstool that is entirely subjugated under your heel to be conquered, to be ruled over. This is the ultimate subjugation. And this implies then that there will be no other enemies. There will be no enemy not under his foot. They will all be brought into submission. And that means his reign is total. It is full. It is universal. No enemy will win against Yahweh and his king. That's absolute. That's staggering. 
How should you respond to a king like that? Well, the psalm, even in David's own response as he sings, we have a twofold response, each captured by verse 2 and then verse 3. So, so the first response to a king like this is that you invite that king to come. You call on that king to rule. You join God's plan in this. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. David has heard the word and proclamation of God that this one is going to reign at God's right hand. And so then David in response as a trusting subject says, yes, come rule. Come fulfill the word of God. Come rule over us. Vanquish your enemies. Obviously, though, that's not an invitation you make if you are still one of the king's enemies, do you? I mean, this king's backed by the almighty God. This is not a king you would mock or taunt to say, as if you would dare him to rule over you. I just dare you. Don't do that. Not with this king. And so what you have pictured here with David here calling out in verse 2. This is a call of loving, adoring subjects already. They want to see him win. They want to come and see him rule. Why? Because they know when he wins, they win. They win with him. Second, the proper response captured here by verse 3 is not just an invitation to come rule, but but a willingness to, to participate in that kingdom a willingness to throw themselves under his rule. Look at, look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. When you come, in other words, we'll be ready. We can't wait for you to get here. And when you do, we, we freely just bow and put ourselves at your feet. And more literally, that expression not that they will offer themselves freely, though that's fair. They will be a free will offering themselves. And that's the thing with a free will offering in the Old Testament. It wasn't required. You were not obligated to do it. It, it. A free will offering came out of the overflow of your love and your appreciation to God. Well, here it's given to the king. And the sacrifice that you give is yourself, your own life. That's what's fitting for this king. So their service, you see, was not by conscription. There there was no need for a draft. They were not being forced into this. They wanted it. It, Those crying out in verse 3, they they know it's a great honor if I could pour out my life for him. Like Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's exactly it here their life poured out in devotion and love to their king. We're behind you, O king. Bid us to go wherever you would have us go and tell us what to do and we will do it because we love you. You are our king. Total submission. And they prepare themselves in this with holy service. You see, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, then it notes, in holy garments. Again, we think about the holy, righteous deeds of repentance of the saints that we saw pictured in Revelation 19 or, or that we saw also in Matthew 22 at the wedding garment, right? Again, we love our king, so we're going to live like our king. We, we prepare ourselves and become holy like him as we await his coming, adorning ourselves in righteous deeds of obedience. This is what's fitting for the king. 
And so you see, note this, there's this correlation between our personal holiness and our usefulness for our king, for our master. Be a clean servant, that way ready to represent and be serving him. And then it rounds out with this curious expression in the end of verse 3. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Translators and commentators apparently all struggle with these expressions. I don't know how many commentators I looked at and just said verse 3 said, this is very hard to translate. I said, thank you. So glad I spent money on this commentary. Partly what's going on here, the the metaphors seem ancient. Uh, They seem old and that way lost to us. Like, for example, there's some debate about whether this dew of your youth, what's this expression mean? Is this talking about the king's actual, actual youthful vigor? that he possesses to then advance and exercise and conquer in his kingdom? Or could it be a a youthful, strong, energetic soldiers rising up each day to be ready and used at the king's disposal? Neither one's out of the question. The the immediate context, though, has been here, verse 3, all about the people offering themselves in service to the king. I think that's more what we're getting at. What you have is this army of youthful, powerful willing and vigorous people filing after the ranks to follow after King Jesus. Just as the dew drops fresh every morning, they again line up looking to obey. That's the kind of appropriate response that this king is worth, that he is due. That's how to respond to a king ordained by God. So then we have to turn it to ourselves and ask, does your own enthusiasm for Jesus correspond at all to that? Does this picture, like what we see in verse 3, does this embody you or the words of verse 2? Are you calling him to reign over even your own life? Or do your attempts at obedience come much more reluctantly? We teach our kids in our home that true obedience looks like, one, you do what you're told, right? That's to obey. But then, You should obey the right way, which is you need to obey. You guys use this one all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. And surely that's a good rubric, not only to use in your home, but that's a good rubric to use for your soul. Are you obeying King Jesus, really? Do you obey him all the way? Or do you obey him, you know, most the way? Or some of the way? Or I'll obey him part way. I'll obey Jesus to that point, but after that, all bets are off. The rest is for me. Is that obedience? Well, I know it's not obedience worthy of this king that we see in Psalm 110. Is your obedience right away? When you're convicted or a scripture comes to mind and you know what you should or shouldn't do, do you then do it? Or do you hedge? Do you qualify? Do you wonder if I'm really going to feel convicted about this to do anything about it. You see them offering themselves freely and so completely to the Lord's work. They're eager to obey. They love to please because they love their king. So do you. So do you obey all the way, right away? Or then is your obedience, your even acts of obedience, are they done with a happy heart? This is a hard one. Or do you begrudge obeying Jesus? He asked too much, Maybe. Or or do you often suspect, what am I missing out on by following Jesus? Or or similarly, perhaps, have you become embittered 
that his service, you even see it more like slavery. Lord, I'm doing all of these things. What am I getting out of it? It feels like I'm just spinning my wheels or I'm wasting my time or what's it all for? None of this is fitting fitting for a king like this. He's worthy of our all. He's worthy of our best. He's worthy of all of our obedience. That is all the way, right away, and joyfully so because he's so good to us. It's a privilege to serve this king, right? It's a privilege to be called by grace to follow him. Remember the gospel words of Colossians. He who transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness and doom and destruction, and he transferred you in by Christ into the kingdom of the son of the love of God. And that happened by his mercy. It is a grace to be called to follow this king. It's a mercy to be grafted in. He is our life after all. We should then live by him and for him, for our king. And maybe that sentiment has been embodied best by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.20 when he writes, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with a full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's the cry of a willing subject of this king. Or maybe better yet, perhaps it's encapsulated, certainly at least more succinctly in the next verse, which you know well, Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ. To live is for my king. My life is for him. Because I know that if I die, I go be with him. It's gain. Give yourself wholly to this king. Enlist and follow him. Second, how do you respond to this king? You reconcile with God's eternal priest, verse 4. So here's the thing. A king that's so great, so worthy of actually all that we are, anything less less than that is not acceptable to him or shouldn't be. That reality, if you think about it long enough, it should terrify you. Because we all fall short. But here's the great news. This great king is no mere king. That's what we find here in verse 4. It's the glorious good news that he's a priest. That there's mercy with this king. This comes as the great and surprising thing about this coming king, the Messiah. Is that he's more than a king. And and that's captured in this glorious word from verse 4. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we all know God's word is powerful, right? I mean, his word is trustworthy. He created with a word. Let there be light, and there was light. His word never returns void. He cannot lie, so his word is sure. It always proves true. He can actualize what his word is all the time. He never fails on his word. His word is as sure and good as he is. That's pretty sure. But here, not only does God just speak, we saw him speak in verse 1 and give his word, but he does more in verse 4. He doesn't merely speak, he does what? He takes an oath. He makes a promise. The Lord has sworn. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this dynamic. And he says, God's word is sure all by itself. But when God takes an oath, makes a promise, it is doubly sure. Super sure. And the surety of his word is understood as he adds, and he will not change his mind. The word is settled. 
Nothing can change it. He will see to it. You can bank, you can stake your life, your soul on this word, and you should. Well, what word? What is the word that came this time? This is the second word that the Lord speaks to the Messiah, that the Father speaks to the Son. Well, what did he tell him? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Ah, yes. That's so encouraging. Who's Melchizedek? Other than a mouthful. Well, he appears in one other Old Testament place, and that's Genesis chapter 14. So if you would, let's venture back there. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. Now here's the trick. We don't have the time and space here to draw out all the details, even about Melchizedek in this short passage. So I point you back to some sermons we did working through the book of Genesis. Uh, We hit Genesis 14 and preached through it. And we did even a follow-up message afterward that explored uh, Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews, where we have the, the most extended explanation in Scripture about these things, and certainly we're drawing from that. But we have, to, we have to comment on Melchizedek, and so we have to summarize here. So let me set the stage for you. So where are we at? We're in Genesis. This is the very beginnings, right? God has chosen Abraham to be his special person, that he's going to bring the blessing to all the nations of the earth through this man and his family. And so Abraham got the call from God, and he, in obedience, left his homeland and came to the promised land that God said he'd give him. And as he went to the promised land, his nephew Lot tagged along with him. Only as time goes on, as Abraham and Lot are living among all of these foreign nations in the promised land, Lot gets captured. He gets captured with a whole bunch of other folks as these marauding kings go about and make raids and they take prisoners and they were running off to the north. And Abraham, in devotion to his family, leads off a rescue party to go get Lot, go get the stolen goods. He wants to bring his nephew home safe. And he does. He's successful. And so as Abraham's making home, his way home back with Lot, he's going to go return all of the stolen goods back to the other kings. He didn't want any of that anyway. He was just trying to save Lot. And so we look at verse 18, where we find that there is this, and even in the book of Genesis, this strange character, Melchizedek, really coming out of nowhere, but he's the first one to really come and greet and honor Abraham for his deeds of rescue. So we pick it up, Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine to Abraham. Now, he was the priest of God most high. And so immediately with Melchizedek, we have two astounding, and to the first readers especially, surprising realities here with this character. First of all, we see here just in verse 18 of Genesis 14 that Melchizedek is simultaneously, he's a king and a priest. That would be a shock to the average Joe Israelite reading this during the time of Moses. Because you see, once God's law was established with Moses, kings could never minister as priests, ever. And you find they get in big trouble when they do. Remember Saul when he was at Gilgal and he tried to make a sacrifice and what happened there? Or there was later on King Uzziah, who in Second Chronicles 26, he insisted on burning incense in the temple and he immediately caught leprosy and was made unclean and cast out. 
See, the Old Testament law that came and was established through Moses never would permit a king to minister as a priest. But, see this, this is what we're seeing in Genesis 14. Before the law is established, it's not necessarily, it's not inherently bad to have a king priest be one guy. Just once the law is established, we're looking Exodus 19 and onward. Once the law is established, that's no longer permissible. So David could never serve as a priest, for sure. But I think he sees this picture of Melchizedek, and he wonders, well, maybe though the greatest king would. Maybe once again the king priest would rise up, and a greater king would come, greater than me, who would have such rights and privileges as these. And indeed, he does. And we know it's so, because this oath from Psalm 110 proves it. As the word comes to the Messiah, yes, you are a king, but you're more than a king. You're a priest, just like old Melchizedek was. But that's not the only strange thing about Melchizedek, that he was a king priest, even from the Genesis text. Here's the other thing. When you're reading Genesis, namely, anybody who is anybody is in a genealogy. If you're in the book of Genesis, you know, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat 12 sons, and many other genealogies that occur in the book of Genesis. But Melchizedek, he's in not a one of them. Nothing, nothing about him. This is the first time we hear about him. He just comes on the scene. Meditating on this truth, the author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament makes this comment. This is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. He says, He, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So even from the Genesis text, by all appearances, it seems as though Melchizedek came out of nowhere, or he just always was. He had no father, no mother, no genealogy. He just shows up. And in that way, Melchizedek begins to resemble the Son of God himself, having a ministry that has no beginning and no end. He has then, as you understand, an eternal priesthood. It just is. And back to Psalm 110 then. This seems to be the very emphasis. And what's so special about this order of priesthood, the Melchizedekian order, much different than the Levitical order established by the Old Testament law. What's so different? The Melchizedekian version is an eternal one, an unchanging one, a sure one, with a perfect intercession. So back to the promise of Psalm 110. It is this eternal, forever nature of the priesthood that that, that this is the sure word that gets emphasized here in verse 4. Again, the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest, and there it is, forever after the order of Melchizedek. A priest, a mediator, a go-between, a way to get to God, and he is one forever according to this order. Now we turn to the book of Hebrews to grasp the glorious significance of this forever priest. And the author of Hebrews does so by first contrasting, as we were just talking about, the priest of his own day, of Levitical priesthood and the law, with this far greater priest, the one mentioned in Psalm 110. Because he notes this. This is Hebrews chapter 7, Verse 23, the former priests were many in number. Uh, Why were there so many priests in the Levitical priesthood? He says, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. How many presidents have the United States had? 
And even if you had the perfect political candidate, right? And you thought he was, he was the greatest and he would do the most good for this country. And even if you were able to change the laws so there were no longer any term limits and he could really be president or leader of this nation, till when? Till he's dead. And then it's over. And then you start over. He's still going to die. His presidency is still going to end. And so it was like that in Israel. Your high priest, your chief intercessor, he's always going to die. And then you're always left with, well, who's coming next? Are they going to be as circumspect about the law? Are they going to be as good at intercessing to God on my behalf? I don't know. But not this priest. For first, and again, continuing in Hebrews, Hebrews 7.24, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. Now, why does he do this? Because he continues forever. See, this is the genius of the resurrection. Jesus defeated death to forever live so he can minister as your priest forever, unstopping, never ending. His intercession for you as your priest is not temporary. It's not only while you have a good attitude about Jesus. And it's not only during even your lifetime. He's always intercessing because he's always alive. Death will never drive him out of office. Sin will never touch him and corrupt him or disqualify him. We'll never find skeletons in his closet. He will never leave his post. He's a forever priest. And the implications for our assurance here are mind-blowing, namely captured in this verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, verse 25. What is a forever priest able to do? He says, consequently, he is able to save. So what can he do then? He can save, he can deliver, he can rescue, he can redeem, he can show you're forgiven and you're loved. And he can do so to the uttermost. That means to the very end. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He's able to save all the way to the end. It's in his hands. He has promised he will not lose a one, not one. Not even the stragglers he will lose. But so it is. Why is he able to save to the uttermost? Why is Christ's salvation? Why is the work of this priest so sure? Why is he able to save to the very end? Here he reads, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since, why can he do this? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know what that means? He always lives to pray for you, to plead his wounds for you, to secure God's mercy for you, to ever say, yes, I know he's a sinner, but I died for those sins. And he never stops. That's why he lives. To do his priestly ministry to all that look to him for saving. And he does it for an eternity. There is no greater priest than this. There is no better way. There is no other way to God than this priest and his sacrifice. So don't draw near to God with promises, oh, I'll do better next year. Don't draw near to God with leaning on old works of obedience. Look how faithful I've been before. Don't draw near to God through any other mediator go-between. Certainly not anybody who's dead like Mary 
or, or some saint or through mediums or superstitions or your own good works. That gets you nowhere. When you can come by the risen, eternal priest, the only one in the Melchizedekian order. Why? Because he's the only one that conquered death and he's alive. And he bids you come. Come in your time of need. He has plentiful grace for any that do. Be reconciled. And in that way, maybe it's for us in the church, ever reconciled to God by faith in this eternal priest, Jesus Christ. Don't come any other way. There is no other way. Come by the sacrifice and ministry of King Jesus. All right, third. How do we respond to God's king? Finally, this means that we hope in the king's sure victory. We set our heart upon, we look forward to nothing more than his sure victory when he comes. So back to Psalm 110. That's what unfolds, namely in the rest of the psalm in verses 5 to 7. There are here these statements describing the king's unstoppable victory. We, We have statements here in Psalm 110 that about all the world will be conquered. All enemies will be destroyed and completely so. In verses 5 to 7, why is that going to happen? Because the Lord God Almighty empowers this eternal priest king. Such that, even look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand, David recalls. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So observe that tight partnership between God and his king. Earlier, Yahweh had said, Messiah, come sit in my right hand where you can reign and rule. And now the Lord is coming along the Messiah's right hand to fight his battles for him and win a sure victory. He will assuredly conquer. No one can stand against the Almighty God and his king. Such that when the priest king goes to battle, he will ravage and destroy his opponents. Look at verse 6. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This calls to mind another messianic psalm, Psalm 2, where David sings about the coming king. And he notes that and says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Just a clay pot being thrown on the ground and shattering in a million pieces, never to be put back together again. And even here, it says he's going to fill the nations with their dead corpses, the slain dead, those who dared to oppose this God and his king. And this turns out, this looks like the culmination of all of the promises of God. It says he will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. Or you might note, there's a footnote there, And instead of the word chiefs, it actually even quite literally reads the head, singular. That he will shatter and crush the head, namely of all his enemies. This calls to mind that great promise, doesn't it, from Genesis 3 verse 15? Remember, in view of sin coming into the world and Adam's sin, and it looked like death was coming upon us all, God gave this promise, yes, but there will be one to come from the woman, a seed from the woman who will do what? who will crush the serpent's head, the greatest enemy on earth of all. All that oppose God, all that oppose this king, this king will be crushed, they will be smashed. So just as God promised oh so long ago, all 
evil will be crushed and conquered. All the promises of God to end evil will be brought to pass by this victorious king. And indeed, he has a zeal, a passion to do this, to have victory. That's what's intended by the expression there in verse 7, when it reads, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. The idea, probably, is this, is that as he's on the march and as he's advancing on his enemies, he doesn't have time to take a break. He's not going to rest. He's going to just stop by the brook wherever he comes by. He's going to take a drink. That's going to energize him. He's going to lift up his head and keep hot on pursuit. He's going to waste no time in hunting down every last enemy and bringing them into submission. His zeal will lead him on until every enemy is vanquished, until victory is won. And that's the great hope, isn't it? This sin-broken, evil world we're in, that the king will be victorious and he'll eradicate all sin and all evil. And gloriously, that seems to be exactly what this psalm is about. That's what it's all about. War, victory, enemies defeated. That's the big part of this psalm. I don't think it's actually the biggest part. Did you notice, though, the very center of the psalm? It's seven verses. Verse four is right in the middle. And it seems strange, doesn't it? If you played the game, which one of these does not belong? Of all of these verses, which one are you going to pick? You're going to pick verse 4. I mean, the verses that come before verse 4, 1 to 3, and the verses that come after, they all speak about kingly stuff. Reigning, ruling, crushing enemies, shattering kings. And then seemingly just dropped right in the middle is this verse about a priesthood? What's going on? See, oftentimes in Hebrew poetry and songs, the emphasis or key, the the big underscore and underline is put right in the middle. It's like a sandwich. And all of this kingly rule is sandwiched right around him being an eternal priest. And why is this so key? Because you got to understand. See, there's a big problem. If this king's rule is so absolute and he is going to overcome all evil, what's the problem? See, I'm evil too. There's still evil in me. Does that mean he'll need to vanquish and conquer and condemn me? What if there be evil in me? Will I then be found an enemy on that day and doomed? And really, that's true. If that's all the story we have is verses 1 to 3 and verses 5 to 7, and we hear about the king coming and bringing justice, and he's bringing his sword, we're not going to be like the, the folks in verse 3, oh yeah, come rule over all your enemies, because then we're going to die. No, a response probably would be a lot more like Adam in the garden, right? When he sinned and he heard God coming in the garden, what did Adam go do? He hid. Why? He says, I was afraid. I heard you coming. And indeed, to fall into the hands of the living God as a sinner is a terrifying thing. So if all you had was verses 1 to 3 and verses 5 to 7, it's hopeless. And yet it all hinges on verse 4. This glorious news that the coming one, yes, he's a great king, but he's a reconciling priest too. There's mercy found with this king. 
That's why any of this talk or hope in the promises of God, that's the only reason it's good news at all. It's because, yes, this king is going to come and rule, but he will first come to make peace. And then he will come. He will come to make peace, to take away our sins, to take our punishment and reconcile us to God. That all who believe in him would be right with God and for all time. That's the glorious news about this king is that he's coming twice. First, he comes to make peace. Then he sits down at the Father's right hand. Then he's going to come later and rule. Just as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that's in this first coming as the Melchizedekian priest, as the dying and rising Lamb of God that takes away all our sin for those that trust in him. So, have you reconciled with this king yet? Have you leaned on his sacrifice, his peace-making death on the cross to make you right with God? Have you rested on his great victory over sin and death as he made an empty tomb? Do you see? That's your only hope. And if you have been, then you do have a glorious hope when he comes. Because he, com- he not only comes as a, a far-off politician or a disembodied monarch, he comes as your loving Savior who died for you, such that we will read like in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified, honored, exalted among the saints, to be marveled at all those who believed in him. That's the day we long for, to see our king and priest come for us. And may that hope capture our hearts, again, a longing see the one who saved us, to see him face to face. So what will that look like for us till then, till he comes back? What does that mean? Three things. First, enlist again and again with willing obedience to the king. He comes for repentant, turning from sin people, not sin tolerating or sin squinting at people. Now, he does not come Listen to this. He does not come for perfect people either. We'll hear about that, Lord willing, in Matthew 23. He doesn't come for perfect people, but he comes for people that are not satisfied with their sin, people that long to obey him more. That's who he comes for. So with that, how can that show in your life this week? What is one way this week you can prepare yourself to be a more willing subject in obedience to the king's rule and his word Enlist again and again with willing obedience. Second, keep going back to him as your priest. Your only intercessor for sin, your only way to God. Don't fall into the trap of trying to please God by what you do. Nor, if you messed up this week, don't try and wait till you have another good week before you come back to God. Ask him for his mercy and walk in his promises. Like if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Always keep going to the king. Again, back to 1 John again. He writes that whole book to say, I write these things so you wouldn't sin. But if anyone does sin, he reminds us, we have an advocate, a mediator with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But don't turn to any other so-called mediator. There's no hope there. Ever be confessing resting on his grace and mercy that he has abundance of to give in your time of need if you come to him. And then third, reset your hope. Reset your expectations on him and his truth. 
even to your own, even to my own soul this morning. I just preach. It's soul, are you worried? Soul, are you discouraged? Why are you cast down, oh my soul? Your king is one. He's defeated all of the great enemies, sin, flesh, the devil, death. He's won them all. He's undefeated in that way. And he's won for you. And he's coming back for you. So brothers and sisters, lift up your head and look to your great king. He's coming. And brothers and sisters, remind one another as as we await, he's come. That whatever troubles we have right now, whatever enemy tries to trouble you or stop you, discourage you, get in the way, he can't get in the way of this king. He's still coming. He will not stop until he is one. And it is sure. It's confirmed for us by two words we heard the father say to his son in this psalm. The Lord promised. He said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But more than that, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We live by those glorious words. Keep your hope, your heart on your coming king, who is far more, far more than just powerful. He's a redeemer. Let's trust him. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we come to you, our mediator, and we confess that we have not honored you as we ought. We confess that we are sinners. We confess that we've not given you the obedience and devotion you're worthy of. Forgive us. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for your righteousness, how you've shielded us and protected us. You are a great and glorious king an eternal priest, you are our only hope. As we await your return, may we be obedient, may we long, may we look up and say, amen, come Lord Jesus. May our lives this week reflect trust, rest in you. And that for the glory of your name and the name of our Christ alone we pray.